Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hello, everybody. Um, and thank you very much, Vice Chancellor Westerman. That was a wonderful introduction. I'm very happy to be here tonight and see a lot of you here with us, and especially to be here having a conversation with Caroline Brothers tonight. Um, so this... Um, I think this event is the first one to mark uh, like kind of uh, 10 days of events, as we already heard about. So Caroline will be here, but then uh, the performances of, uh, of flight, and here's an image of that, uh, will uh, begin in a couple of days as well. So um, um, <clears throat> we will be discussing here about 45 minutes, and after that, I will open it up for questions from you for about 15, 20 minutes, and then after that... You have the opportunity to buy the book outside from Caroline when uh, she's willing to sign it for you. And there's a little reception outside. Um, okay, so let's get started, uh, Caroline. I, um, as we heard uh, from Vice Chancellor Westerman's uh, introduction, you were trained as a journalist and worked as a journalist first, right? Um, would you like to start by telling us more about the research that you uh, you did uh, to find out about the child refugees that your novel Hinterland is based on? Oh gosh, it's a very interesting process. In a way, it kind of it's a story that crept up on me mm. in that I was already doing a lot of reporting on on immigration into Europe really before it became a big issue. Like I could see it building. We could see it building. And then the issue of child refugees was kind of invisible. And it was kind of, the, these kids were kind of hidden in these flows at the time were kind of Iraqis and Afghanistan people coming through into Europe. And when I first started writing about immigration, it was Africans leaving in these Cayucos from the coast of West Africa, arriving in the Canary Islands. And that just astounded me, mm. how people could leave in a little wooden boat mm -hmm. and travel thousands of miles. Um, I was roughly about a thousand miles, actually, to these, these islands, and they never knew which one they were going to land on. So I was kind of taken by the journeys, as many journalists are at the outset. And then it's only as you start working with this that you realise that the journey is just the beginning of the story, and it's much more complex, you know, it raises so many issues for receptor countries and arrival countries. Anyway... So I was I had been covering this very broad subject and every now and then I'd meet, I was in Venice and there was a young man there who talked about, um, he'd come there as a 17-year-old and um, an Afghan boy and then, and then he mentioned to me that there was a train station in Paris. I was living in Paris at the time and there was, there was a train station where young refugees would mm. gather and decide where to go next, whether they'd try to go to Germany or Sweden or England or whatever. And, um, and I was sort of living, I worked out, just down the road from this park. And so I would, I would kind of walk past it one evening and I saw these people lifting sheets of cardboard out of the bushes to, and lifting big bags. I had these big bundles and they were lifting them out of the bushes and that was bedding and clothing. And then I started to talk to them and realised that they were, yeah, they were teenagers mainly, like 18, 19, 20s. And then I was in Calais reporting on the bottleneck of migration there and started to notice there were a couple of little kids, eight-year-old boys, and one with a 16-year-old. 
And then another time in Paris, there was a refugee shelter, a shelter for, actually, a shelter for minors, I should say. And there was a little boy of 12 years old sitting outside that, and he pulled out his you know, his bus ticket for Sweden, for, St- for Stockholm, where he knew nobody. And so it wasn't like the story of child refugees wasn't out there. It was something that I started to notice mm-hmm. little by little. And you talk to people, and then I heard about this little shelter for underage migrant kids. So I knew that there was enough of them to be a kind of a small phenomenon, if you like. But no one was talking about this. No one was reporting about it. And there weren't articles in the mm-hmm. press. There wasn't academic research on this. So I thought, oh, gosh, I'm on the edge of something here. Mm. And so that's how the initial, the initial stories got written. You know, when I started talking to these kids and realising that they were this, what I was doing was making a, an invisible phenomenon visible, I think. And that's what journalism can do. It kind of can start the conversation. So that's kind of how I came into it, you know. And um, you published a couple of newspaper articles yeah. uh, where you... Surprised, or was there anything about the reception of those? Or? Oh, yeah, there was. It went to the front page, so that was kind of mm-hmm. like a feather in my cap in terms of journalism. And which newspaper was that? So that was the New York Times, mm-hmm. and Obama had just come in. I thought, oh, maybe Obama's read my article, you know. <laughs> um, and the front page of the, of the International Herald Tribune. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the weird thing was, I went back to talk to some of these people because I was still covering the story. I was interested in what mm-hmm. was going on. And someone said, oh, my God, you've done us a terrible a terrible thing. I thought, why? He said, they started donating us money. And, like, it was this little tiny organism, a little NGO. Mm-hmm. It was just some some neighbours who'd kind of got together because they were worried about these kids camping on their doorstep. And um, suddenly money was coming from the United States because people were very moved by the story mm-hmm. and very concerned and worried. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, perhaps they'd seen that their soldiers had gone to this part of the world and mm. the impact was hitting other countries. So so that was one thing. And, um, and then there was an editorial written in the New York Times and they're based on my research. And so I thought, gosh, you know, this, this can have, journalism can have impact, you know. You feel sometimes when you write it that it's just going into a vacuum. And I did have that feeling. That's kind of what led to Hinterland because I felt I'd written these stories and these kids were still on the road and they were still invisible and nothing was happening, nothing was changing. And so I felt like I had to do a bit more than just mm. leave the journalist articles as they were, you know. Thing. So yeah. even though they were noticed and um, people were talking about the articles, not, no actions were yeah. made. Right. Things take time to yeah. change. I mean, there were NGOs like Save the Children mm. and mm. UNHCR had started, to, they created a, a, a platform where this is discussed mm. and... You know, and then everything became very political at that mm. time. Mm. It still is political, but it really started to flare up and it became quite, at times I felt like, what am I doing? I'm inserting myself into this right. very tense debate and I was sort of worried that there'd be a backlash on social media or, mm. or even personally. So mm-hmm. it was nerve-wracking. Mm. But, you know, obviously there's journalists that do much more dangerous work than that. But, you know, you just, you don't quite know how people are going to take mm. things. So... That's another debate, probably. But <laughs> um, so, as we heard, you were you also um, have a PhD in history. Mm. So you're also an academic and have written a, a book uh, called um, War and uh, Photography. War and Photography, yeah, right? Yeah. So it seems like you're kind of drawn into um, issues of conflict. Um, like, is, yeah. is is there a particular interest in this, um, or do you know why you're drawn this, to these kind of issues? 
I don't. I kind of grew up in the suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, <laughs> like at the far end of the you know the southern hemisphere, and it felt like nothing happened, you know, and that everything mm-hmm. happened somewhere else. So. Initially, very naively, I was drawn to situations where things seem to be being resolved. And uh-huh. it's only as you get close to them that you realise that this is an awful way for things to be resolved. Mm. But I was kind of drawn to these kind of these passionate debates, I think. I and the Spanish Civil War seemed to me a time when, you know, choices seemed quite clear. Of course, the closer you get to these things, the pixels start dividing and you realise it's all much more complicated. But um, I think I was sort of drawn to these seemingly insoluble situations and yeah. was sort of interested in trying to find answers to them. I don't know. Um, yeah, and as a, I, I guess and my approach to them, yeah, the first book was academic, but mm. this, the, as a journalist, you, as, when you're in journalism, in the thick of it, you're not thinking like an academic, but you're looking for academic research. Mm. And there, were, there was an Oxford Institute uh, called Compass, that were, was looking at my... It was one of the few that was providing, you know, rich research that I could use. It gave me a bit of context. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I was, when you're in the thick of journalism, then you're thinking about touching bases, getting contradictory points of view, mm. representing something honestly. So, yeah, there was, there was a kind of academic interest, but it wasn't, it wasn't helped a lot by academia. Mm. I would have welcomed more. I see. I would have welcomed more. There was a need for it. And do you think your own uh, background in academia, academic research, somehow influenced the way you approach <laughs> the story? Um, perhaps it did make me, I think training in history makes you very aware of your sources mm. and what agendas sources have and what the origins of sources mm-hmm. are. And that was really useful because even NGOs who are out there at the, you know, at the, I don't know, at the coalface, I suppose, you know, trying to do their best. They're not always your best friends because they have an agenda and they sure. want to tell you something. It, they're a bit fast and loose with the facts. And so as a, as a historian, I think, having had that academic training, it helped make me mm. aware of how to read sources, mm. you know, how to be aware and be wary of, of things that fit an argument a bit too neatly. You have mm. to be super, super careful of. So then... Taking all that into consideration, mm-hmm. it's an interesting choice that you made writing a novel. Oh, you yeah. wanted to fictionalize <laughs> the story. You yeah. said a little bit about it already, about kind of that the story kind of fizzled or became too political, and that's mm. why you chose the novel uh, to write a novel, a fictionalized story. Can you say mm. a little bit more about yeah. that decision? In fact, it was it was the. It was because it, the context was so politicized and there was so much shouting and I felt that people mm. were getting far away from the real issues. And this is the most human of stories, I felt. And, that, and it seemed there was something very natural in it. People escape conflict. They escape um, problematic climatic situations. You know, we, we, we struggle to survive. Mm-hmm. And I felt like these, the, the human side of it was not being heard in all the political screaming. People took positions and they were hardened on their mm-hmm. positions. And I felt like this is a very essential subject. It's not going to go away. This is our world from now on. You know, the population of the mm. planet, of planet Earth in my lifetime has doubled. Like that, that kind of blows my mind a little mm. bit. You know, we are a populated planet and there's going to be these, these moves, these shifts. So I felt I wrote the novel because I felt like this subject wasn't getting a fair hearing in journalism. Right. And that it needed to be thought about 
and talked about in a more thoughtful context, <laughs> in a more thoughtful way, mm. and that people needed to get over their anxieties about these things. So I thought the book might be a way to allow people to understand a bit better what mm. they're really dealing with, what mm-hmm. we're really talking about mm-hmm. in, this, in this subject matter. So I think that's why I, I think I wanted, I consciously wanted a different audience or to find my same audience but in a different, I, I, in a different time frame almost, mm-hmm. the slow time frame of fiction rather than the fast speed of, mm-hmm. of fast news, you know. Since um, in a novel and a human story there's characters, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the main characters, the brothers in, of, uh, of Hinterland? Yeah. Uh, well, they're composite characters mm-hmm. in that, um, you know, when the story revealed itself to me in a way, um, the phenomenon of child refugees, and then I'd done my news articles, and then I decided it needed to, more air, more oxygen, I thought, well, how am I going to do this? And I, start, I wrote a couple of short stories, but um, the short story was about one boy. And then I realized in the process that actually he needed somebody to talk to. You know, it was, <laughs> it was too quiet being a sort of an internal monologue. And so, I, so he's, the little brother Kabir emerged. First there was Orian and then Kabir. And then I thought, I'll give them a friend, you know. So Hamid emerged from, mm-hmm. from that, that kind of... And they were, they were built up from the stories and the... The, the developments that had happened to the kids that I met. Mm-hmm. And there was one child in particular, his name is Jawad, and I met him on the footpath in Paris. And he told me that his mum had sent him to Iran um, because she couldn't cope. And she was, you know, he, was, he got to the age of 14. And I think you're a young man at the age of 14. And she sent him out into the world with, a, with another man, like a, an uncle or some distant relative. And he got to Iran. And then... Um, Somehow he got, I don't know, he got passed on to another man. I think that the uncle wanted him to work or something. And he got passed on to a man who ran a cafe and this boy was serving teas. And then the man got angry with him and said, you're not making me enough money. And he said he took me to a place where there were many men. And I just, there was just this moment where I thought, oh, my God, this is my worst nightmare. This is what mm. this child has been through. And and it was it was. I felt like a confession from him and he was so um, frightened. He was too frightened. He got a bus and the bus had gone, he'd got off, at the, he got the wrong bus and it led him somewhere way out of his, and he was too frightened to get the bus anyway, even with me because I was going to take him to the shelter. And he was too frightened. We had to walk and we had to walk the way we knew. And he stood on the footpath one day and he said, how should I make a future? Mm-hmm. How should I make a life? And it just got to me you know mm-hmm. I was in tears at the, you know when I went home I thought I've got to write a book because mm. I've got to people need to know that mm. this is just a little person on his own in the world you know escaping forces that he didn't even understand that had mm-hmm. carried him all this way and so these it was these these faces these little bits of stories that I put together in in Hinterland mm-hmm. yeah they're composites yeah, yeah. And some of the events, like you mentioned, just from uh, some of the boys you met in real life, uh, very brutal events uh, yeah. that also take place. And just, of course, the whole arc of the story, what the boys have gone through just to even leave uh, their homeland. Yeah. How did you deal with that, writing a novel, so that you wouldn't, you know, was it difficult? Or, I mean, did you keep your reader in mind that you wouldn't overload the reader with uh, these kind of really harsh events? Or what was your take on that? Yeah, my first 
draft of it, I showed to, um, a, I was on a writing residency actually in Scotland. It seems Scotland's a theme in my life. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I showed it to the poet who was running this writing residency. And she said, you know what? You're protecting your characters. And I thought, oh. she said, you've got to, you've got to put them at risk. And I, was, and I realized that I was looking after these little boys, you know, and I had to put, I had, the bad things had to happen to them. Mm. And you can't believe how hard it was to write those sections. Really, really you know, I ended up weeping myself, you know. I think I wanted the reader to mm. feel what I had felt, right. you know. And I think it's true in fiction that you can't, you have to, you have to put your characters under pressure. You have, I mean, these boys are fictional, but at the same time, they're real, and that's this weird thing for the reader where you, you it's, is it fiction or is it not fiction? Mm-hmm. You know, it's based on real things. Um, those two boys don't exist, so we can think, okay, it's all right, it didn't really happen, but then mm. it is happening. Mm. And so I think to be, um, to be true to the subject matter, I had to face my own fears and yeah. I had to, have to, ha- had to let happen things mm-hmm. that I really didn't want to happen, yeah. you know, that were my worst nightmares in a way. And then um, I thought, you know, we're grown-ups. We need to know what these children are, what risks they're facing. Yeah. And, you know, all our countries have signed this International Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's the most, like, rapidly um, validated refugee treaty in his, or, or human rights treaty in mm. history. It's 168 signatory countries, signature countries. And, um, and yet we're letting them down. You know, the rights right. of the child have to be the priority. They shouldn't be treated as migrants. They should be treated first and foremost as children. So it was a whole other ball game that I was entering mm. with this, yeah. you know. Uh, anyway, yeah. I'm going off on tangents again. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, I mean, going back to the idea that it's kind of um, at the time when this uh, refugee, called refugee crisis in Europe, mm. I mean, became a really hot, hot issue, mm. as you mentioned. Mm. Um, what about the kind of vocabulary? Uh, would you call the boys refugees? Are they asylum seekers? Are they migrants? Because this seems yeah. to be part of the discussion that's Gosh. going on in Europe at the moment. I was the nutcase yeah. in the newsroom who kept yeah. saying they're not illegal immigrants. It's not mm. illegal to be in right. Are you saying they're criminal immigrants? Or mm. what, what are you saying? What is this term? And I had a big battle with the New York Times because okay. their, their concept was developed on the U.S. border, mm. and which is a different situation, you know, okay, and that keeps changing also. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, do the, these boys didn't consider themselves refugees and the boys on the road would, would consider that they had a migration project. That's how the, the NGOs would refer to them. This is their migration project. They have a plan. They're going to meet their uncle mm-hmm. who lives in whatever country or their brother or whatever. You know, so they don't at all think of themselves as victims, mm. not in the least. Mm-hmm. And they don't even think of themselves as refugees. And they don't even know what asylum seeking is right. or means or the Dublin Convention or, you know, how to do it. You know, they just want to get from A to B. Mm. And yet they encounter all these. And then they learn about fingerprinting and then they start shaving off their, their, their thumbprints with razor blades and, and, and putting glue on them and stuff because they're frightened mm. of what would happen if they, they know that whoever... There's money behind them, and so sometimes their family have hocked or sold their businesses, their homes, mm. their orchards, whatever, to get this child to safety. And they've told them, you've got to get to Sweden or you've got to get mm-hmm. to England. And so they're not going to be deterred by any other um, versions of reality. They've got to get... So, so they're, they're someone with a mission, mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm. And it's only us, in a sense, that turn around and we put them in these boxes. They're refugees, mm. they're illegal immigrants, they're migrants, they're... Mm-hmm. You know, they're victims of some sort. But they, you know, they didn't, 
see themselves like that. They yes. learn that they have to categorize themselves mm -hmm. and present themselves and request asylum, request protection and mm -hmm. all that. But it's a vocabulary that they don't have initially, some of them. Interesting, yeah. Sometimes the smugglers tell them to, you know, mm. and say you're Palestinian because it's harder to send you back or don't say anything at all when you meet the border guards, mm. you know. There's all sorts of misinformation, mm. you know, amongst themselves as well, you know. Interesting. Sounds like they they themselves want to have a sense of agency. Oh, you okay, know. definitely. And, uh, definitely. and that's like I think you represent so beautiful in the novel with the list of cities that they keep repeating the brothers, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, that, you know, they the need mantra. to get to. Yeah. The map, the invisible map. Yeah, of, yeah kind of keeping their eye on the target that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Um, in our um, discussions uh, with the freshman class during the Marhaba week about the novel, mm. like we had these discussion groups, um, I think it came up, like we discussed like uh, with several people uh, who ran those kind of discussion groups about the issue of gender in the novel, mm. right? Mm. Um I think it was interesting to people that why why uh, uh, brothers or like yeah. did you in your research encounter any girls on the road? Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't meet any girls. It's it was exclusively young mm. boys, and I think that's because I was intrigued by that too. And I think it's because the families would never ever let a girl run those risks. Never. Mm. They protect the girls. Mm. And the young boys, sometimes they've become the man of the family. The father's died, and so they send the, the older boy out, they, at least one child. It's like a, strat a survival strategy for a family. You send one child out, mm -hmm. and another child you might keep close to you, and the young one's too small, and the girls you keep close. And I think, so it was, I did only later meet girls in family groups, okay. and that's when the Syrian crisis broke. I met a few Syrian families coming through Paris, um, Mother, father, and they they would sort of, and the two children maybe, and the, the NGOs would try and quickly get them to safety somewhere, like to get them into a shelter so they weren't sleeping on a park mm. bench or in the park. Mm. Um, but you wouldn't often meet girls. I think girls mm. maybe, girls are too at risk of trafficking, mm -hmm. and I think their families are aware of that. And they may come other ways. I think there are girls at school in the UK that are refugee girls that mm. um, have but have come with their families, and generally they've come perhaps through. They may have come by plane or you know mm. as a, an not necessarily overstayed a visa, but requested um, protection on the arrival with the families. But you don't get. You just don't get. I mean, I don't want to say never, and it never happens. Because I do know Human Rights Watch was involved in trying to rescue two um, two Afghan girls that had been separated from their family, so mm. that things like that can happen. Right. The risk of trafficking, but, but kind of those camps and uh, yeah. in your research when you went to these places, you didn't. See, I didn't yeah. see girls. Yeah, never. We had a little discussion earlier about this. Uh, I think it's maybe an academic thing, but here in the academia, we often think about nowadays, especially kind of a hot topic about who has the right to represent other people or oh, tell yeah. their story. Um, did you ever worry about that, <laughs> writing the story of, uh, of two Afghan boys yeah. not being from Afghanistan or being a, being a Western yeah. white woman? Being a female, not being Afghan, mm. not speaking mm. their language. You know. Yeah, it's, it was, uh, there was a certain level of discomfort, and I resolved that by telling myself that this story is not being told by anybody else. <laughs> This story needs to be told, and it's, secondly, it's a story in a way about us, right? It's about the receiving countries. It's not necessarily about the children. But if I'm going to tell a story about these children, I have to do it to the. I have to be 
more than conscientious about mm -hmm. my facts. Mm -hmm. It has to be unassailable. Mm -hmm. So I had um, an Afghan friend. I checked every single fact that I that, that arose. I asked him, you know, what did you know of England before you came to England? What did you know of Europe? What is your preconception? What are your, what are your metaphors? And your, I mean, obviously I couldn't ask it in such an abstract way, but I had to, you know, what, what shoes did you wear? You know, right. how does a family sleep? Mm. You know, all that, all that stuff that happened in Afghanistan before they left was deeply researched. And I had to, I had to be you know, holier than thou in a sense, you know, more conscientious than you could normally be, you would normally be to make sure that those facts were right. Mm. And I was very um, anxious about how an Afghan would read it. Would they mm -hmm. find errors in it? You know, mm. it was because I, I really did want to do the best I could by those kids. So mm -hmm. I didn't write, want to write a story that people would shoot down and say, oh, look, it's sloppy. It mm. hasn't been, mm. this doesn't, this wouldn't be like that. So that was my defense yeah. to try and do the very, very best to the very best of my ability. And it's interesting, it sounds like then your journalistic and academic background <laughs> with the facts yeah. really like came into, into play yeah. there. Almost, yeah. almost too much for normal fiction, uh -huh. I think. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think fiction, you have the, 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 the permission to make things up. Mm -hmm. But this is a different kind of story. It's fiction based on true life stories. So I didn't feel I had that license. Mm. Yeah. For the externals, obviously for the emotions, you can attribute emotions, but for the factual things, mm -hmm. I really tried kind of crazily <laughs> to get right. It's interesting you call it like there's normal fiction and then there's this uh, <laughs> abnormal this fiction. fiction. Yeah. 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 Um, do you consider, I mean, because it's based mm -hmm. on the kind of your own political interest of drawing attention to it, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a fictionalized, it's still a novel. Do you consider, consider it political writing? This is a really, really good question. Um, I think there's a suspicion about political fiction. <laughs> mm -hmm. People think, oh, it's propagandist or what are they slipping under the, there's an agenda behind it. We don't know what it is. I didn't think of it as political fiction. Of course, it's underpinned by a political context and political reality. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't trying to bang a drum for any political stance. This is for me. This is a fundamentally human story, and that the, the human thing needed to be looked at, not the politics. I, I was trying to get away from the politics, mm. you know. But yeah, people will look at it, I suppose, because there's sympathy. I suppose you could say yes, there's sympathy for these people, and the context has made it political. Mm. I don't know if that's disingenuous. Maybe no book of fiction is right. apolitical. Uh -huh. We're all part of our time, mm. and even if you don't mention fiction, you don't mention politics. Maybe that in itself is a political statement. Mm. So it's a tricky, it's a tricky one. But I know I felt very clearly in my mind that. I didn't even mention the French president, who was very vocal and at the time. You know, there's a portrait of the president, but I don't even mention the name. Like, I don't go near that. Mm. But people can interpret fiction how they want, you know. That's what it's there for, so. Was there a particular thing you wanted people to feel or get out of the <laughs> novel that was different going back to why you changed from the format of uh, journalistic writing? yeah. I think you've kind of said a couple of things, but is there something you'd like to add to that? I just wanted people to to get over their fear and to know what these people have gone through. Mm -hmm. I, I, I got a, um, a message on Twitter from a doctor in Bradford when the book came out, and he thanked me for writing the book because he was getting Afghan 
kids showing up at his surgery or his dental at his um, doctor's clinic at, I think he was in a hospital with injuries that he couldn't explain like he couldn't he didn't realize that they'd been hanging on to, under the chassis of trucks you know so I felt like this mm. book if it does nothing else it has helped one practitioner understand his patients you know and that it's done one little bit of good in the world mm. you know but it really was that to open a space for um, for a for a debate a quiet space for for understanding this issue that is really an issue, maybe the defining or one of the defining issues of our time. Mm -hmm. So I said it's got to be talked about away from this short-term haranguing, mm -hmm. you know. So that's what I wanted Great. to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> and you mentioned fear. What do you think that you'd like the novel to kind of dissolve fear? What do you think the fear yeah, is about? Yeah, fear of the other. Right. And who are these people sleeping rough in our streets mm -hmm. and they look so dark and dangerous? You know, who are they really? What are they going to steal from me or mm -hmm. steal my babies from the park bench? Or, you know, you know, there's a lot of irrational fear around that. And it really does dissolve when you talk to these people. Mm. Really, you don't realise how polite, how, you know, touching their, um, how courteous they are. You know, I don't want to, you know, generalise. And, of course, not everybody's a great person, sure. But I was actually kind of pleasantly surprised mm taken by surprise by the, 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 it's like people had come from cultures where they were very, you know, very um, well brought up, well mannered. Mm. I was really surprised after mm. the, you know, the difficulties of life on the road, mm -hmm. you know. Anyway, I'm going off track again. <laughs> I don't think you were. Um, okay, but before we start talking about the next uh, kind of life Phase, now yeah. that, um, that the novel has uh, received with Vox Motors' performance, yeah. um, you've picked a little moment in the novel you'd like to read. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I think it'll be a good kind of segue into thinking how does this then function in the kind of theater that yeah. we have the pl uh, pleasure of seeing on campus this week and next week. Okay, it's a little section um, near the beginning of the book where the boys have just crossed the Evros River and they've arrived in Greece, although they don't really know where they are. They're just in the back of a truck. And um, it's interesting. I suppose I wanted to read a little bit from the book because you're probably going to, some of you are going to see the play and it's kind of interesting to think about what, what theatre can do that novels can't and also vice versa. So... There, this is Orian and Kabir, the two boys, and their friend Hamid are in the truck, and they've just, they're just driving, right? After a while, the truck slows. It leans into a long curve, and the men in boxes slide with emotion. Why are we leaving the highway, someone says. Okay, there's other people in the truck. Maybe it's a detour. Maybe it's another checkpoint. Maybe they're going to let us out for peeing. Only in first class, my friend. The next road is less well made. There is a different rhythm under the tyres, a regular double bump as the wheels hit the joints in the surface. The change in tone wakes men who have learned to listen in their sleep. From the crinkle of their clothes and their silence, Orion can tell that they are alert and straining for clues. I'm hungry, Kabir says. Orion pats his chest pocket and pulls out a wad of silver paper. He hands Kabir a pillow of Turkish chewing gum. He will feel ravenous afterwards, but the explosion of sugar and the illusion of food will trick his stomach for a while. The hours slip by. Orion cannot tell if he has dozed or slept. The road is growing rougher. The big tyres lurch into the potholes. The wind that accompanied them on the highway has dropped. Finally, they stop. Kabir sits up. 
or in stomach tightens, he hears the sound of men's voices outside. The doors swing open. For the first time, he sees the driver, his dark bulk silhouetted against a pale rectangle of sky. He's a big man with short-cropped bottle-brush hair, small eyes and a ruddy face. Boyan blinks in the pastel light, sees a smudge of blue hills beyond and wonders if it's dusk or dawn. The smell of cold and oxygen in the outside world invades the truck's fuggy cave. Looming in the doorframe, the, the man searches. Then he points to Kabir. You come, he says. The men in the truck stand up. Maybe this is the drop-off place for Patras, but Kabir doesn't move. No, no, the man says, just the two brothers. He lunges at Kabir and grabs him by the arm. Kabir yowls as the man swings him over the edge of the truck and onto the ground. Boyan hurls himself behind him like a creature gone wild. Hamid kicks over the boxes and throws himself after Orian. But the driver catches Hamid hard with his fist and sends him sprawling backwards onto a tower of boxes that topple against the truck's inside wall. Then he slams the door shut. For a few moments, all is silent. Then Hamid is shouting and banging on the truck's metal sides. Someone stifles his protests. Beside the truck, a thick-set man is grabbing Kabir by his arms. A white singlet stretches over his belly and a piece of rope holds up his trousers. He looks at the driver with nervous eyes while the boy twists like a pinioned kitten in his grasp. Here's your merchandise, the driver says to the Greek man who nods. The driver hoists himself into the cabin with a movement surprisingly lithe for a heavy man. He sends a rosary and a pair of dice swinging madly above the dashboard as he reverses back up the road. Orion runs after the truck, feet skidding in the mud as he loses his balance and recovers it beside the churning wheels. He thumps the vehicle's side. Hamid, he shouts. Orion comes a muffled reply. The wheels spin and gain traction. The truck accelerates and disappears over the rise. It's only when Orion comes back that the man releases the child. Orion pulls Kabir towards him and folds him in his arms. Across, uh, folds his arms across his brother's chest, holding him tight to stop his shaking. Kabir rubs his arms where the man's grip is already starting to flower into a purple tattoo of bruising. The air is pungent with earth and manure. Ragged farm buildings sprawl around a rusting tractor abandoned in the yard. It has Greek lettering across the windscreen and its tyres have herringboned the soil like army tanks. Ploughed fields recede into the failing light, and behind the rotting sights of an enclosure, pigs with mud-caked ankles root around an overturned pail. Where are we, Orion? Kabir says. Orion's tired mind is whirring. He's trying to recall whether Muhammad said anything about working in Greece when they set off from Istanbul. Surely he would have remembered. In the village near the Evros, the father of the boy with the withered arm said only that the truck would take them far across the border. He thought they were going to Patras, where all the Afghans were. Come with me, says a man in the singlet, his knobbled fist in the small of Orion's back. He takes them to a small white building. Two pallets of straw fill the recess of a whitewashed concrete ledge. There is peeling green linoleum underfoot and a dripping tap outside. A washed-out curtain hangs across the doorway, sagging in the places where it is torn through its hooks. Across the yard, smoke leaks, leaks upwards from the farmhouse chimney and smears the darkening sky. Their breath curls like writing in the air and disappears. I don't like it here, Kabir says, when the man is gone. Well, it's not my idea of paradise either, says Orion. But where do you think we are? Somewhere in Greece, I suppose. But why do they bring us here? I don't know, Kabir. Probably to work. Doing what? 
What does it look like to you? How long do we have to stay? Kabir, I have no idea. Probably till we've earned our passage and they're ready to move us on. Orion is suddenly tired of his little brother. He's tired of having to think for the two of them. Tired of being held back by his brother's short legs. Trying to having, try, tired of having to be reassuring when he's riddled with foreboding. Tired of having to provide answers to things he doesn't understand. Now he wishes he could be alone to think. He doesn't understand why they were thrown off the truck or why they were separated from the others. He's starting to wonder whether some arrangement hasn't been made concerning them. In Istanbul, maybe, or by the people who took them across the river to Greece. Kabir turns his back. His frustration ripples through the silence in invisible waves. Orion knows he has hurt his feelings, but for the moment he doesn't care. Since they arrived, something unexplained has been flickering at the back of Orion's mind. Now it rises to the surface like a diving bird swimming upwards through the waters of a lake and formulates itself into a question. How did the driver know they were brothers? Thank you. That's an uh, incredible passage that really I- exemplifies how much there's movement uh, in the novel, right? And it, it starts in Greece and ends up in, in London in some yeah. ways, right? Uh, kind of, right? Uh, but um, so um, how did the, uh, the adaptation with Vox Motors come into being? Because it doesn't necessarily immediately strike as a theatrical piece necessarily with yeah. thinking about the actual staging. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about what's happened and how, how, how did it come into being? Well, I guess that's a kind of a mystery to me because I have to ask <laughs> Vox Motors what, the, what they saw in it. But when I spoke with them, um, one of the things that uh, Candace's co-director, Jamie Harrison, said was that they really liked the fact there was a lot of imagery in it. Mm. He said that when you make an adaptation, it swallows up a lot of pages really quickly. So what I have there, the bit I just read, is one image in Vox Modus. Like there's in the play that you'll see, there's one image. They've arrived in Greece and it's a beautiful image and they're in the room. And I love that image so much. But we don't they can't show the interiority of the thought, but they show it. So there's this mm. kind of, I think probably what they saw was in the book there's, I don't know, they go, they traverse a lot of different countries, a lot of terrains, a lot of seasons. The journey's quite long, um, about roughly a year. So there's, you know, so there's a lot for mm. a theatre company to work with in terms of, mm. you know, orange groves and icy winds in Calais and, you know, without giving away too much. Mm. So I think that was part of it. And imagery. Imagery, it, yeah. but Vox Motors will have a much fuller answer of to that course, than I yeah. can give you. Yeah. But, um, and also they like, we talked about them being boys. I think there's also a, that's one thing I was going to mention, that I think it's like, I think it's something like 86% of books are bought by women. Mm. And I thought, if I want some guys to read this, I'm going to have male characters in it, you know. So there was also that. Um, and I think Vox Modus were also interested in, in getting a certain age group into theatre and, and also young men who are maybe not necessarily the typical theatre goer. Mm. So there's something in that, mm. you know, it is a boy's story, but it's a story for all of us. We're mm-hmm. all concerned. And what was your role in the adaptation? So we're thinking yeah. about the story that, uh, that, that came from your research in, for a newspaper articles, went to a novel, and now <laughs> working with a theatre company. What was your role in that process? Um, Vox Modus came and visited me in Paris, and we 
I was very um, very impressed by their dedication and their interest, mm. and they knew that it was this story was still developing, and they were really interested in going to the source. And very quickly, we established a relationship of trust. I felt that I could trust these people. That, mm. that they're, it's not because often um, when a novel is adapted for for cinema, it goes through enormous numbers of changes. It's rewritten dozens of times. The endings market tested, and <laughs> and I was kind of, oh, what do they do in the theatre? What are they going to do to my precious words? You know, and um, and I felt very quickly that I could trust them, and that they were their interest was was um, serious. And that we had potentially um, an outlook that was compatible. Um, I don't want to put you know words in their mm-hmm. mouth, but mm-hmm. I from and so my role was um, I had the, the they they had a dramaturge to write the or a playwright to write the the scenarios, and I I was um, and I. I had the right of review of that. I could review drafts and things, and I felt that. It had to work as theatre, and that's not my domain. I'm not a theatrical writer, mm-hmm. and they are experts in this. So I felt that I could entrust my work to these people mm-hmm. and that um, they would do amazing work with it, an amazing job with it, and that I felt that my role, in a sense, was a little bit of guidance. Like I, For it to be convincing and powerful, it needed to be true. Mm. As much, you know, all that factual work that I'd done on it, I wanted, I didn't want to lose that. There was a discussion, the Syrian crisis had happened. Um, Should we make the characters Syrian? And should we make them girls? And should we, and I was saying, look, the timing won't work. And, you know, all this, they would have taken a different route. And the, you know, the, 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 the context was different. So let's stick to what's strong and true with this. And so when there were a couple of, like I, I think I read a draft and I might have suggested don't make these characters female because you wouldn't have got mm. female sm- mm. smugglers, for example. Or, you know, I could see they wanted to introduce much more parity mm. and that's very admirable of them. But I sort of felt like I resisted that a bit because I'm, I'm you know, I'm a feminist also, but mm. I felt like to be for the story to ring true mm that there were certain changes that couldn't be made. So it's a sensitive thing working with someone else. But um, I thought it would be best to be hands-off. I interviewed, I talked with another writer, Ima McBride, who's, um, who's um, it was a book she wrote called A Girl is a Half-Form Thing. And that was, that was dramatised on the stage. And see, she, she read every single word and every single draft. And, and so I mentioned this to Vox Modus, who kind of blanched at me <laughs> and said, okay, I will trust them to do their thing, mm. and I will read what you want me to read mm. and comment in the way you want me to comment, and and I'll let them work their magic, which they've done. It's interesting. The word trust came up yeah. uh, many times, and I was like, yeah. "That's the most important thing." Then to working with somebody doing an adaptation of a work that you put a lot of time in, as you said, they're your words, and you yeah. want to like hold on to them. I felt because was the story was very close to my heart. Mm. I put a lot of love into it. You know, I did mm. it. At, you know, all around my normal job and all my spare time. And, and then I realised that Vox Modus are doing the same thing, mm-hmm. you know, because it's a ma- when you see the intricacy of the work that they've produced, it's, you know, you, you can't fit that into nine to five. You know, mm-hmm. it's like they put a great deal of heart into it and, and it is a labour of love and I think you pick that up, you sense yeah. that, you know, mm-hmm. as it was for me, as it is for them. So, And I don't know how other people go when they adapt things. I mean, maybe you just... Maybe some people are very controlling, but mm. 
I don't think I needed to be. I think they made something Great. amazing, you know, and it's faithful in the in the the narrative, and the events and the characters, and so I do feel that it's it's mine as much as it is theirs. You know, Absolutely. of course they did all the work, but. <laughs> What do you think of the effect? We talked a little bit of what you wanted the reader to get out of a novel. If we think about the adaptation and then you've seen the show many times, uh, what do you think is the effect on the audience? Is there a difference? Do you think it's, mm. it's mm. achieves something different or uh, than, than reading a novel does? It's, it's very interesting um, to see people come out, you know, of the, of the performance. You know, some people have, uh, I, I don't want to, They give too much away also. Mm. So, but some people, who, if they haven't read the book, they get the story raw from the theatre. And if they've read the book, then they know what to expect a little bit. And so they can be perhaps a little more objective. Mm. And um, I found, I went to see it and I went as a spectator and, I, and halfway through I had to pinch myself, oh, yeah, I was at the origin of this. You know? <laughs> like this is my story, you know. But um, it was so, so new and different and I was. I felt. I think I felt more objective when I watched it. Mm. You know, but I know that people come out of that theatre deeply involved with mm. it and resolving to do things. Sometimes, you right. know, people. I'm going to do something, <laughs> which is like wow, and um, and quite emotional sometimes. Mm. You know, it's so. It's interesting to. Um, it's unpredictable. Mm. I think. I don't know. You know, it's it's and every time I've seen it, it's like I've seen a different show. Because it's there's so it's so rich and there's so much in it, and I remember different things. Hmm. And I said they left out this scene, and then I walked past it. Oh my god! I walked past today that they left out that scene, and then I was thinking what I would read. Hmm. And I, oh, there it is! You know, I'd hmm. forgotten because I'd focused on something else. Yeah. So it's very it, it bears several watchings actually. Yeah. Sounds like I mean I can't wait to see the show, but like sounds <laughs> like. Um, That it's achieving many of the same things, though that uh, that you were in a kind of theatrical of, oh, way. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, there was a title change. Would you like to talk <laughs> about that? So, novel is called Hinterland. Uh, if you want to tell us why you titled the novel that, yeah. but then the Vox Motor show is called Flight. Yeah. So there's a change there in adaptation. Yeah, I mean, you know, it has to work as theater, and Flight was a title that that um, they, got, they rallied behind, they wanted it. And um, I wanted to keep the title Hinterland because I was very invested in that. I love that word. And no one, And then it turns out that a Welsh TV company has used the title Hinterland for a TV series that everybody knows. And then a Scottish, um, I don't know, architectural outfit used the name for something that they would think, mm. my word, how can mm. they take my word? So I could see Vox Modus' um, argument. And in the end, I, you know, I agreed. And... Um, But hinterland for me is a very evocative word because what what I felt was each city we're in is the hinterland for the next one. So that when someone leaves Afghanistan and they go to Iran or they go to, to Istanbul or they go to Athens, you know, the people in Athens don't know what's gone in, in, in Istanbul. And the people in Athens are the hinterland, if you like, for what the characters are going through when they get to mm. Rome, which is, you know, the next point of call. And everybody, each city feels that they're the center of the world and that, you know, none of the others exist kind of, and this, these people are invading us, you know, and they've all mm. come to take our way of life. Like, no, they've got their own projects. They're trying to go somewhere to be with somebody, you know, an uncle or a friend mm -hmm. or a job or whatever it is. So I just thought it's the hinterland is the unknown things and the things that are going on on the outskirts of our universe that 
we don't see, mm-hmm. that sometimes things go on in our name, policing and so forth, things, steps are taken in our name in the hinterland. So it's, it's just out of sight. Mm. And also we all have our own hinterland, which is our private world of, you know, what's our cultures, our families, our experiences and our thoughts. So mm. it is a, for me it's a multi-layered mm-hmm. term. Um, I just wanted to ask still, and then we'll open the uh, uh, for questions, but um, uh, the title for tonight's talk was Storytelling <laughs> for a Jaded World. Yeah. Um, so what do you think, uh, story, why do you think storytelling is important today <laughs> to fight this idea of uh, jadedness? Yeah. And what do, what do you, these different uh, kind of forms of storytelling, what do you think they can do or mm. how do they achieve that? Uh, how to, there's so many ways to answer this. Um, I think I wrote this book at a time of intense uh, political fighting and noise and backstabbing and mm. attacks. And no one wants to hear about refugees because that was the subject. And I thought, yes, this needs to be spoken about in another context in a quiet context. So I wanted my story to find its place in that world that was jaded with so much, you know, political mudslinging, mm. so much argument. Um, when Vox Modus was putting, was developing flight, the Syrian crisis broke in 2015 and Europe was flooded with migrants. You know, Germany took in a million. I mean, there were p- the countries that Hungary was blocking its border and it was it was this mayhem across the Balkans. And and um, and Vox Motors had agreed to turn my novel into a play or into a theatrical, well, into theatrical production. And then they decided to think, how are we going to do this? This world is saturated with mm-hmm. images of refugees. Does anyone want another story about... And I was, you know, and they were quite right. How... Are we going to put this story out into a world that's so sick of hearing about it? Mm. And um, and to their immense credit, they went back to the drawing board and they said, we need to think of something else. And they could have dropped it, mm. you know. That could have been the end. But instead they said, we need to rethink this. And this is why I have endless admiration for, for the way they did this because I think it's almost like a metaphor for, for – because this is an, it's a major problem, a major – um, issue for so many countries. What are we going to do about the people of the world that mm-hmm. need rescue, that mm-hmm. need uh, that need refuge? And um, Fox Motors went back to the drawing board, and they came up with a whole new concept. It's so radically different to what they were thinking of doing, mm. and it's so radically different to anything else you can ever see in any theatre anywhere. I would venture. And I, I and the reason I'm so full of admiration is because they came up with a new solution to a major problem, you know, and and to a, a major potentially a major difficulty. And this is kind of what we need to do, mm. you know, with with a problem that seems so immense to us and so difficult to solve. So let's think outside the box. Let's do something we haven't done before, or let's do something that has been done before, and do it in a new way, you know. And look what we've achieved. Look what Vox Modus has achieved. You know, it's like. I just love that. I feel inspired by that. So that's something that I'd like to share with people. Like, just inspired by, you know. And so, yeah, they came up with something amazing for our jaded world. And look, people are going to it from New York to Australia to Galway to Edinburgh. To, here they are in Abu Dhabi. You know? It's like, it blows my mind. You know? So, all credit to them. Fantastic. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Caroline. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, 
www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute